<laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for welcoming me and for your patience. I'm excited to talk with you. Sure, I am too. Like, I love the show. <laughs> I Thank watched you. it a few times. Oh, yay. Thank you so much. <laughs> so one of the first things I always like to, one of the first questions I always like to ask um, my guests is, what got you into the field that you're in? So you're a writer, and this is your first um, televised production. So I remember the first time I actually saw you in person was at TIFF. You were moderating a, a panel. Was it the one with, um, it was a panel for TIFF. Uh, oh my God. I remember it was the one in 2018 or is it 2017? The years mean nothing now. Is it with, um, with the one with Steve McQueen? Was that the one? No. No, it was. Oh my gosh, why am I forgetting his name? My guy who's going to be playing um, Blade. Oh, Mahershala. Mahershala. Yes. yes, that was a lovely interview. That was one of my first major interviews i was so nervous but he was so lovely that was a wonderful one yeah no that was a great you were great and he's a great i think he's a great interview um interviewee uh, interview yes. subject like he answers questions so well yeah he's very generous and like just really sincere and thoughtful yeah it was great he is so like tell me about getting going from that from like working with companies well organizations like tiff and doing panels like that because like you're a film critic but you also know you're a writer and a creator of a whole television show so tell me about the progression and that would have been i think like 2017 18 i think and so like where did you have the idea for the show then or was it um or was it a, a, a idea you had that generated within just the few last few years before development yeah um well i will say i'll preface it by saying my first dream for myself has always been to be a writer and i specifically wanted to write novels but a well-meaning family member told me that if I wanted to be a writer, that means I would be broke. So <laughs> I um, I ended up going in a lot of other different directions, um, one of which was to start, uh, it was to become a television host. And through becoming a television host, I ended up getting invited to do things like do live sort of long form interviews with people like Mahershala Ali. I definitely wouldn't describe myself as a film critic because I think there's this very specific skill set that comes with criticism that I don't necessarily know that I have. Um, but I, I do like to write and comment on pop culture. And so that's, what the, you know, the way I've been, um, I've been known primarily through my work for the last few years. But prior to that, I was writing theater plays. Um, and I wrote a play called Other Side of the Game, which was produced in 2017. And I invited like a lot of, you know, the of my colleagues and some of my managers at the CBC. And one of the people that I invited was Sally Caddo, who's um, one of the kind of big heads of, of television at CBC. And she wasn't able to make it, but she did use it as an opportunity to ask me if I was interested in scripted television, which I was. And it was it's interesting because I, I went to the theater um, I pivoted to theater um, because I didn't know that I could do television and film in Canada because I didn't see any black women doing television and film in Canada. Maybe there were, but I didn't know about them. I didn't see them. They weren't visible to me. And, but in theater, I was seeing lots of black women creating incredible work, like really powerful, transformative, um, funny you know, boundary pushing work. And so I was like, oh, this is the space where I guess when people are creative and want to tell stories in Canada, where when they are black women, this is where they get the platform. And so that's where I went. But if someone had opened the door and said, do t television right away, I would have gone straight there. Um, so when she asked, I was like, yeah, I do. I, I do. And she's like, do you have any ideas? And I was like, I have so many ideas. And so she's like, well, come on in and, and pitch me some ideas. And so one of the ideas that I had was Revenge of the Black Best Friend. And that meeting was in 
like January or February of 2018. So I come up with the idea at some point before, but I'm one of those people that just like comes up with ideas, writes them in the notes app and then leaves them until, you know, the opportunity presents itself. So I don't have an exact date for when the idea came, but it's been, it's been ruminating for a little while. Hmm. And so did you have a fully fleshed out idea of where you wanted the show to go? Because I think even though it's six episodes, like you cover so much ground mm. in these six episodes that like you make so many references about like not only black film history, but black Canadian history in particular. Mm. Um, like from, Just from the very first episode, you, you referenced the Maroons and how white people are considered to be the pioneers. And you're like, no, you're not the pioneers because like Maroons, black people were here first and then of course the indigenous people were there first yeah. and you make just like straight off the bat you go into the make these historical references and also present day references and even not historical but just like back in the day references to like I love the fact that you just straight out the gate reference bring it on and <laughs> and the thing that is so interesting to me that what you did with this show is that you touched on so many things that are popular with black people in pop culture. Mm -hmm. Like as I said, there's Bring It On. And then there's even Grease that you reference. I love Grease. I still think Grease 2 was better. <laughs> like it has better songs, <laughs> better songs than the first film. But there's Star Wars and you make these ref these nerd references that people don't don't even think that black people are interested in. But I'm like, yes, as a black woman, I get all of these references. And these are references to things in pop culture, in nerd culture mm -hmm. that black people would get. So just talk a bit about integrating all of these aspects into, into the story. And did, and were these part of the, were these part of the framework and the outline that you had at the beginning? Or is this, or this is stuff that just let you add it in as you went on developing the stories? Well, I would say that pop culture was a huge part of the initial idea from the very beginning. So the initial iteration of the idea was that it would be a support group for Black actors that are cast as token Black characters in film and television shows. And this support group would be led by a woman named Dr. Tony Shakur. And every week they would meet up and each week we would deal with a different character. Um, and it's kind of, it was a kind of a weird world where they, 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 they arrived as their characters as, or as their tropes, as opposed to as actors. And then you would get to like go into these revenge fantasies. Anyhow, that was the initial iteration of the idea. But then like maybe a year into developing that idea, this show came out called the astronomy club. I don't know if you remember, it was like a black, black sketch comedy show. Yeah. I've seen Netflix. a couple of episodes of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of their first sketches that they put out as promo for the show was that exact idea. It was literally a support group for black actors cast as token <laughs> characters. And it was really good. It was like, they had, um, you know, this, like a sort of spoof on, uh, um, the guy from the green mile, they had like a spoof of uh, Whoopi Goldberg and ghosts. Like they had like all of these really like iconic sort of pop culture characters that were in all of my, my, my like pages of outlines <laughs> that I'd been making. It was literally the exact idea. And I was so crushed because you know, that happens, right? You have this idea that you think is your own, but you're really kind of responding to something in the zeitgeist and somebody else who's quicker to the dial makes it happen. And, uh, the idea was dead. Um, but my producer at the time, Lisa Balin, encouraged me to go back to it and focus less on the specific pop culture references and more on the tropes and also maybe shift our focus on 
the person who's running the support group and maybe like think about her a little bit more. And so I started to do that. And then we brought in other writers. So I didn't write the show by myself. We brought in other writers to develop a writer's room, which was kind of my excuse to get myself in a writer's room because I really wanted the experience and I never had it before. And I was like, oh, well, I get to make this this time. Um, and so Motion, uh, Seneca Aaron and Kiwi Lynch were the three other writers that joined it. And in that room, we sort of, I kind of had identified the specific tropes that I wanted to tackle and the pop culture, the large pop culture references that those things come from. And then together we sort of like started brainstorming even further, trying to figure out the purpose of, cause you know, you can, you can throw in pop culture references forever, but they need to serve a purpose. Mm. Um, and, uh, and what's the through line of the season? Cause very quickly we realized that we didn't want to do standalone episodes. There might be something more powerful having a sort of through line, um, throughout. And so, you know, I think as we wrote the drafts, you know, there's sort of the big references and then there's sort of like the more subtle and smaller references. Like you mentioned, the Maroons and the Pioneers. That was, that was like in part, um, like a legal necessity because we couldn't use like the team names from like the things that we were borrowing (laughs) from. And so I was like, oh, well maybe now that we have an opportunity to create new names, we could like suddenly just throw another little like like nod to something here which some people pick up but very few do like you're one of the few people that i know that have like kind of picked up this whole idea of the maroons and the pioneers um and and you know it was just kind of like a nod to the land that we're on and the history of that land and you know you don't have to go into a whole long lecture but you just kind of put it in there and it's kind of an easter egg for whoever gets it gets it you know and it was really Mm -hmm. fun to go through the script and do little moments like that um especially as you just try to like push the humor a little bit more, push the layers a little bit more. So I would say in answer to your question, it was a little bit of both. There was some stuff that was from the beginning and other stuff that you start working it into it as you, as you keep going back over and over through the drafts. Right. And so you talk about the through lines. So one of the main through lines of the show is how black people in the film and television industry are treated like you can, and not only just the performers, but their characters themselves. And it's kind of like how it's a mirror image, like, how um, black characters are disenfranchised within stories, but the performers are disenfranchised within the industry itself too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're sidelined, they're ignored, they're not given their due or mm-hmm. their credit. And they, they're, they're, their part and the significance of the work that they do um, is, if it's not erased, it's just kind of like downplayed, you know, it's minimized. Mm-hmm. And like, I love how you include, you just like weave it through all of the episodes and and like there's very different tones like you know like the show is a comedy it's like beat for beat a comedy but then like, you, there's aspects of like horror and drama and like for me i think the episode that really always sticks out to me apart from episode one is episode um three mm-hmm. which is the one where um let me, i want to make sure i get the name um the one who dies first yes the one who dies first where the main character is played yeah by yeah. Arayev um Mangasha and like oh, his character like, sh- like I think like you and the writers and the directors like the- you got the tone of this done so perfectly where it's like they're filming a horror but it's like a com- it's like comedy but then as a- I think for me particularly as a black person as a, like anyone the black audience would be like realizing the real horror is the potential danger the actor himself mm-hmm. is in because like you're I'm just thinking don't lose your cool don't get upset you know and like I'm thinking he- if he loses if he like loses his cool like he and he like breaks which is what does happen in this episode he just like 
he gets so fed up and he's so tired of the microaggressions and the macroaggressions and the casual racism is that he's like I can't take it anymore and like for me as an audience member I'm just like I'm so impressed with how like you get the comedy but then the seriousness of this like so talk a bit about that episode in particular and just balancing all of these tones throughout the episode and how you and the writers and the directors and and the cast worked around this yeah, I mean, that's also one of my favorite episodes. It's written by Motion, who's just a phenomenal writer. And, you know, that trope was one we kind of, like, I knew from the beginning I wanted to deal with the one who dies first. And, like, you know, knowing that we wanted to, knowing that the structure of the show up until episode six is that we kind of um, dive into the world of the trope or dive into a different sort of, like, pop culture world. So the first one is an infomercial, second one a talk show, third one is this horror film, and then we kind of go behind the scenes. But knowing that that's sort of, like, the the rules of our world, um, it was interesting to think about, you know, you're, you don't just want to see a horror film, you want to experience it, and you want to experience the horror of being an actor who is put through this type of experience. And, you know, because the show is a satire, is a comedy, there's a lot of opportunities for laughs, but we did know that we wanted certain episodes and certain moments in certain episodes to really make sure not to belittle or subvert the seriousness of all of this. And like the true sort of um, the visceral pain that people go through. And I think that that episode kind of brings it home in a really powerful way. As you said, Araya Mangeshi is just like an incredible performer. He's, you know, been working for a really long time. He's a friend of mine. And I was so, I like, it was kind of like one of those things where you have a couple of people in mind. It's not even about audition. It's just like, will you say yes? <laughs> um, and it was, he was definitely one of those actors in that particular regard. And then that episode is also directed by Tyrone Tommy who um, recently directed the feature film Learn to Swim, which was named one of Canada's top films by TIFF. And he's just like a really great director and to, in his own description, a very moody director, right? He's not necessarily known for like his humor per se, but it was kind of perfect for this episode, right? He brought that moodiness in the best way and brought that, uh, you know, the way it's lit, you know, the way that he... Um, he blocked it out and, you know, so that we're going on this journey. I was very clear that I wanted the second part of the episode after we come out of the movie to feel like we're on a journey with Phil, the character. And Tyrone was just so great about how he plotted that out. It was, and working with our DOP, Lester Mulatto. Um, They just did a really, really fantastic job of like immersing yourself in the interior world of Phil um, and just really uh, hammering that in. And so, yeah, I, it's one of my favorites as well, too. And totally, it is quite different from the rest of the show. That was one of our biggest, one of my specifically as the showrunner's biggest uh, fears was that it would feel like six different shows. And so just like wanting to make sure that it still felt cohesive, even though we're kind of asking you to go on a little bit of a different adventure in each episode. And I do believe I, I would consider that episode to be one of our darkest and most, um, like tonally really distinct from everything else. But I think it works because it helps to shift the show from this sort of like humorous external look into something a lot more interior and helps us to get to that place that we need to get to where we start to go into the interior life of Dr. Tony Shakur as well too. No, it I, I think it was done perfectly because the fact that it's the third episode is right in the middle of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, it works as like, I think as a really great transition because like as you're talking, like it occurred to me that like we're talking about the horror that the character that um that Araya plays that he's experiencing as an as a performer on set. Like, you know, he as the cat as he's an actor playing an actor 
who's in this position where he has to like weigh the pros and cons of like how much do I want to react like how do I react and then he realizes he just has to but then like the episode that comes after that it kind of like stays in that in that same vein but not quite and that's the episode um never the hero where it's mm-hmm. like um it talks a bit about it's about horror shows then you know so that's why i think it's like perfect a kind of like a perfect transition because it talks a lot about the horror shows and the horror genres where like black characters either if they if they don't die first they're sidelined you know like they're right. these characters who are powerful and like the, this is like this is set in a supernatural setting where like you have these black characters like they're they have powers but they're not utilized because the mm-hmm. creators the directors and the other cat the white cast members don't value their contribution to the team you know and mm-hmm. it's kind of funny to me how this kind of like you like touch on so many different things there's like the ghostbusters harry potter's a set of films that i've never watched but you know i <laughs> do follow culture, so i know what it's all about and then there's like um the character played by tamika who reminds me of um one of the characters from so many um like films like um sleepy hollow you know like nicole bahari she was done wrong but mm-hmm. it's like you know like she is more than she's being given credit for mm-hmm. and and the fact that you even that you and the team included their reference to how so many when it comes to black female characters they're made especially if they're playing supernatural characters um they're kind of like there's this trope in hollywood where they have they have to have some kind of like non-distinct jamaican or african accent mm-hmm. and i love the fact that you included that in there because i'm like me as a beige and i'm like yes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the fact that one of the characters even mentioned having, even mentioning she sounds like a bitch. I'm like, no, she does not. But it's so funny to me because it's <laughs> such a trope, and it does, and it kind of does follow on from episode three, where it's like in it's a horror film, but this is a horror um show where the characters are like also in a horrific position because imagine as an actor, like you don't get the recognition that you deserve for all of the hard work that you put in on set. So talk a bit about the transition from episode three and going into the rest of the um. Now you talk about the interiority of the performers that they're playing. So talk a bit about that transition and then incorporating all of that into the remaining episodes like Thug Race and Cancelled, which I think is hilarious. Cancelled had me giggling. But um, <laughs> just talk a bit about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you know, you're right. Episode three really is a transitional episode. And there was a moment where we were wondering, should we, you know, switch the order of episode three and episode four? But uh, he ended up keeping it as it was originally structured um, because it just felt like, a really good turn to not only get us into this sort of supernatural episode and, and those characters, as you mentioned, but also that whole like section of the episode is a, is a trailer or a pitch that Tony is doing for a bunch of executives. And so it's also setting us up to see how Tony positions herself as sort of this hero figure, right? The sort of like a uh, guide or um, the architect of like the super squad of, of, of sidelined black characters, but then the juxtaposition of seeing her in the actual meeting, pitching it and seeing how her demeanor changes, the vulnerability that she has, uh, the ways that she um, self-censors in the meeting, the, all the things that are very familiar to us in this, in our real world, as we try to deal with spaces that don't always um create room for us to be our full selves. And so, uh, you know, I feel like that trajectory of like seeing the interiority of Phil's life gives us an open door to say, oh, the show isn't just going to be surface level. We're going to go a little bit deeper. And so we get an, an opportunity to, you know, see Tony a little bit deeper from that episode onwards and see, and then now we can start to question 
her in a way that maybe you weren't questioning her previously. Um, and then like, you know, going into from that sort of never the hero episode, which I, you know, was also just like a super fun episode to make. Like how fun is it that we got to like have proton guns and like wands and, you know, just like revision all of these things that, and you mentioned all of these pop culture references. They're there. Cause I'm a nerd. Like I am the nerd who loves all of this stuff and is just like a super fan. And so it was just super fun to get to play in all of that. Um, and then we, yeah, we go into thug race. So out of all the episodes, I kind of had like a sort of idea of where I, you know, a, a lot of the references, but thug race was one that we came up with in the room. And uh, we were just kind of like, we need something else, like another sort of site. And we knew the trope that we wanted to explore was the thug, but we didn't know how. And so um, the idea kind of came in the room to make it into a reality show sort of spoof. And I think that that, leads us really nicely into this conversation about how are the, what are the different ways that we as black folks try to um, position ourselves to exploit the very stereotypes that we also critique. Right. And like, how are the ways that we sign ourselves up for these things as well too, because we see them as an opportunity to get into an industry that we want to get into or, yeah, like we try to reappropriate things that have been used against us and maybe we can create more depth to it. Like there are just different ways that we, we're not just victims in this narrative. There are different ways that we participate in the narrative as well too, through resisting, through attempting to like appropriate it, through just like ignorantly just being part of it. Like there's all of these different ways. And so we ju I just wanted to make sure that we were really nuanced with the ways that we explored all of this. And I think that nicely brings us to uh, the final episode where Tony herself is called out and really taken off of the pedestal that we kind of created for her in episode one and is brought back down to earth and has to grapple with a lot of the decisions that she's made and the fallout from them. Hmm. Um, you mentioned the word reappropriate, and I just I love that word because um, when especially when you're talking with black culture and black identity, and especially I think in entertainment media, is something that we have to. I think a lot of people don't realize that we have to be very careful of where we're saying we're reclaiming this thing for ourselves, for the black community, for the black diaspora, and then like they don't realize like the harm that can come from that word. People who don't, mm -hmm. even if they have good intentions, the execution is not well done, and I think um, Tony is such a great example of that. Like, Olunika does such a thing, a really good job of balancing the comedy and the vulnerable side of it, as you mentioned, where mm -hmm. it's like she has, you can tell she has these good um, intentions, but her execution is kind of harmful to other Black people, like the um, episode with um, Tay Black, played by mm -hmm. Ashton James. Mm -hmm. He's like, that shows like she's, she's so caught up in the, the, her own hype, as we would say, you know, she's like caught up in her own hype where she doesn't realize that what she's doing, this sense, this thing where she's sensationalizing his harm and the pain that he's going through for her own benefit is mm -hmm. like she's exposing this white director, which is something that needs to happen. But in the process of doing that, she's harming this young black man. Mm -hmm. So talk, talk a bit about that from your perspective as a writer and someone who, um, who does move through these spaces and who has, who has like, um, access to like Canadian television and the Canadian industry and Hollywood as well. Like talk a bit about, have you, has there been any reaction to that particular aspect of the character of Tony? And as well as the episode, the last episode canceled where we, they talk about cancel culture, but it's just like, like, it's like kind of like a re she has to recalibrate and she has to realize like, am I faltering? Am I going down the right path? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, when in writing the show, like I, I, 
the last episode six was the last episode to kind of be finalized because it was the hardest to write for me anyway and hardest to kind of wrap my head around because I knew what I want like what the critique was and like what intellectually I was trying to say but narratively was struggling to get there and I think it was just really important to include it because episodes one to five really felt like a critique of the industry and as I was mentioning like starting with episode five and really going into episode six it becomes this sort of like a turning the lens on ourselves and and when I say ourselves I mean black folks and particularly black folks who kind of articulate or identify themselves as doing advocacy or activist work um and like how Well, um, yeah, with like, and, and to me, for me personally, like episode six is the most personal episode because I feel like that was where I was able to like start asking questions that I ask myself and that I'm grappling with. And that uh, was important to include in the show because although it's a comedy and though it's a satire and although it's a critique of the industry, if it didn't have a space where I could include myself and consider um, a way that I could push the conversation forward as opposed to repeating all of the critiques that we so often hear, it didn't feel worth it. Like, I don't really want to be creating stuff just to educate like a non-Black audience about stuff that Black folks already know. Like, that's not the purpose. So that's why it's really important. And then in terms of the response to it, oh, and I would also say Olunike did, a, 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 I agree, did a fantastic job bringing all of that nuance and bringing all of those different colors to this character and it was really interesting watching it in a screening that we had prior to the premiere um, where the audience was like so in love with Tony that they got defensive of her. You know, <laughs> like I could hear like one of my best friends was like, man, what's his problem when Tay Black's, you know, kind of calls her out. And he's just like, man, what, what's his problem? Yo, this guy's so ungrateful. And it was really, and then for her to like sit and witch, watch the rest of the episode and be like, oh, I guess there's some stuff that she's done. But I think... Olunike played Tony so brilliantly that people kind of fall in love with her and then they have to go on this complicated journey with her. Um, and in terms of the response, I think it's been interesting. I think that um, for those folks that, you know, watch the full series and yeah, I, it's been a mixed bag. I feel like some people don't get that critique and don't understand what we're trying to say and kind of like don't even engage with it. And then for others, it's, it becomes sort of a stand down and thing that stays with them long after they finished watching it. And uh, I'm really excited. I'm really excited about the ways about the kind of questions that I've received from people about that episode and the ways that people have, you know, really taken it as something that they need to sit with for a little while, which was always the hope. And it's okay if it doesn't hit for everybody. I think everybody comes at it from, you know, in a different place. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, I, I feel like, did I answer all of your questions? I hope I answered all. No, of you did perfectly. Okay. I, do, I have I have one final question for you because I know you have yes. to go soon. Um, uh, one of the things, like as I keep saying, there's many things I love about this, but one of the things that really, as a person of West, who's West Indian, who's Barbadian, I really, I really appreciate is how you inter, um, integrate, like how the set design as well as um mm. the concept, certain um visual concepts show so much of like black um female. Um, I think history and present too, because like you make references to Ava DuVernay, Beyonce, Issa Rae. Mm -hmm. I believe Tony, I'm like, what I've been wondering the entire time is Tony a reference to Asata Shakur? 
and you know, and her and her work as a civil rights activist and like everything mm-hmm. that she's been through. And then there's like, you know, the costuming is stunning. I would wear every outfit that Tony <laughs> wears. The dresses. When I had hair on my head, because my hair is cut super low now, but like the hair, I'm like, I'm like, I, I miss my afro. I miss doing those like puffs and everything. But yeah. then there's like the steel pan player. Like, thank you so much for that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it it seems like a small thing to other people, but I'm like, yes, an actual steam rapper because that is something from the Caribbean where you would have a show and like you would have a sub there playing a steel pan in the corner as like the as like live entertainment. So just talk a bit about those aspects and incorporating those things from black culture and from and black female, I guess you could say identity and sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, I think part of it was just intrinsic to the process because we hired nearly all Black female keys in, in those departments that you named. So Nicole Simmons was our production designer. And, you know, I we had some early conversations. And then from her very initial sketches, I was like, you get it. Like, you totally get it from her. You know, she was inspired in creating the talk show set by the set on Z-Way set. Um, you know, that, that set design, she was also inspired by old episodes of Oprah, Uh, Mm -hmm. just she pulled so many really amazing references that like I had so few notes for her she just totally got it and then in terms of wardrobe Cece Chalanga who's just like an incredible stylist and in wardrobe uh um was our key wardrobe and she this was her first time doing key wardrobe and she just killed it and she I specifically talked about the importance of you know this process being about centering blackness throughout, like not just on, like in the story that we're telling on the camera, but in every way that we can. And so booking or trying to borrow as many looks from black designers, Canadian black designers as possible so that that's felt throughout. And so when you saw the looks, like a lot of them come from black designers or just Canadian designers, um, but just like trying to make sure that that's centered in every single aspect of the show, like the stolen from Africa shirt that Skip Shepard is wearing, like that brand is a Toronto brand that's been around for a what, long time. And even if you don't know the brand, like you get the joke, like, you know, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, like we wanted to make sure that we could like, we, and it's not about like a diversity quota or anything, but the show is literally called Revenge of the Black Best Friend. So blackness needs to be at the center of like every element of it for me. Um, and, and when we talk about blackness, it is expanding beyond an African-American conception of it. I'm not American. I, my background is Grenadian and Venezuelan and like, you know, so I love incorporating as much of the diasporic understanding of blackness as possible. And that was also, you know, part of the critique of the show. It's like, there are so many ways that blackness is done wrong, is done incorrectly, even by black people, even like (laughs) black Americans trying to write black Caribbean people is so often a fail. So (laughs) it um, is as I I wish I I wish I could take credit for the steel pan player, but it wasn't me. That was motion. She thought of it. She put it in there and it was so brilliant and so wonderful. And Chelsea Russell, who plays her, was just so (laughs) animated. And then again, that music, that literal steel pan music comes from, you know, a local Toronto steel pan musicians, uh, Joy, Joy Laps Lewis and her husband, um, created that that music. Uh, it's a song of theirs that we that we were able to commission, not commission, sorry, that we were able to license. Um, so yeah, again, like just trying in every aspect of the show to like really live the thesis of the show of centering blackness as much as possible was like really important for me from the beginning and something that I was really clear to all of our funders, the network, my producers, like everybody that as much as possible we need to make that 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 the part of the the story as well too the the story behind the story 
Mm, you guys all, everyone did a fantastic job. Um, is there, for my last question, very, very last question, I promise. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> is the season two in the works? Uh, we have not received a green light on season two. So there's a season oh, two God. that exists in my mind, but I don't know if it's going to be manifest yet. Okay, fingers crossed, not come with throw some salt. CBC will be contacting you. <laughs> yeah, there will Thank be you so much for all of your support of the show. Like, I really appreciate it. I loved, loved reading your Twitter threads as you were watching it. And, like, your interview with the cast was so great as well, too. Great. Thank you so much, Amanda. I hope you have a great day. And Thank I know you. you're busy with the baby, so congrats on that as well. Thanks so much. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you. You too. I'll, I'll... Comedy series on CBC. Revenge of the Black Best Friend. Um, thank you for everyone who who joined us live and who um, will be listening in for in, to the recorded segment. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate Amanda taking the time to talk with me. And um, you can stream um, Gem online as well as I believe that you can download the app on if you have a Roku TV. So watch it and um, remember to use the hashtag show support. And um, until the next episode of Charlie Talks, everyone. Stay safe and have a good day. Bye.